Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the next episode of the Blockchain Advisor. Today, we have with us OEX broker Frank Walsh, FHW, the man. Um, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you were one of the original, original, original guys on the trading floor in the options pit. I'm really excited to have you on the episode on the show today and to get your memories and experiences of, of the old days when open outcry and paper trading cards and 60 million share days on a New York stock exchange was a big deal. Frank, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. So uh, are we going to be able to have your attention? Or are you just flinging spoos and net and QQ? No, I'm just, like I'm all just day long? watching. No, I'm done. I'm okay. I'm, I'm pretty flat. I'm flat the NQ. I'm flat the spoos. I'm good now. All righty. So Frank, tell us how, where did you grow up? Where, when were you born? What city? <laughs> what were your hobbies and interests? And then we're going to lead into what brought that, you know, what brought you to the CBOE? I was born 71 years ago um, in Chicago. Um, grew up, my folks owned a tavern just east of Oak Park on uh, like Little Italy now. Um, mm -hmm. Then we moved out to the north suburbs. I went to St. George High School. Then I went to Arizona State because a couple of my friends went. One of my best friends still to this day is J.V. Prozel, J.V.P. His family was, uh, his grandpa, great grandpa maybe, was one of the founders of the Board of Trade. Um, he got me the job with Becker on the floor mm -hmm. um, in 1976. Yes, before exchange traded puts. A lot of people uh, at Thinkorswim always say that, oh, Frankie was around before puts. Right. Um, before exchange traded puts. People traded puts, but you had to put a ad in the paper and it was you had there was no fungibility. So if you sold one to Joe Blow, you had to go back and buy it from Joe Blow. Ah, okay. I do remember the put page on the, the wall street journal i think it was oh yeah the chicago little, tribune too yeah yeah there the guy i leased my first seat from he was one of those guys he put ads in the papers and he traded options against his stock he he'd buy puts against his stocks and he'd sell calls against his stocks but just with other guys and that uh -huh. was brutal it was because i started clerking for him mm -hmm. Um, and he had to go and chase these guys around. It was just stupid. And that was in 1976? Yeah. Okay. And he so started, he got his seat in 73 when they opened the SIBO um, because his family owned a couple board of trade seats, just like the Prozels. That's how the Prozels got their CBOE seats mm -hmm. because they owned board of trade seats. Was and it Jumper? They, was Jumper JMP? Was he, he was Mark? Prozel, wasn't he? Mark Prozel was MKP. MKP? On the board of trade. Okay. They, were, they had, I think at one time, six seats. Um, wow. All the brothers were down there, Jay and Mark and Fred and Henry. They were mostly in the corn and wheat pits. Uh, was Jay Prozel, was he in the, he was in the oats pit, wasn't he? 
No, oh. that would have been uh, Henry, his okay. brother. <laughs> okay. H -A -P. I remember those guys. H-A-P was his acronym. That was his grandpa's acronym, too, on the floor, Henry A. Prozel. Wow. Um, and then they can, then Jay came to the SIBO when it opened. Um, we were actually at ASU together, and as I'm, I'll never forget. His father called, and it's like late 72, and he said, Jay, uh, you got to come back to Chicago. We're opening an options exchange. Wow. And that's he was one of the first guys, him and Eddie Kelly and um, – a few other guys and then he introduced me to uh andy mcleod at ag becker i remember andy mcleod and he hired me as a runner and at the same time i was a racquetball pro at the midtown courthouse downtown on LaSalle. really yeah i taught racquetball um so i was playing racquetball in the, at nighttime teaching lessons and on weekends and riding my bike down to the floor from uh Sandberg Village, where about half the people that lived there were traders. Sure. I used to take the 26 bus down LaSalle Street with uh, all kinds of guys. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then uh, I worked for Lee, Ke after I worked for Becker, Lee Keller, LDK, does that name ring a bell? Well, that name does not sound familiar. Well, you'd, you'd remember him if you saw him because his nickname in the Johnson Johnson Teledyne crowd was Two Men in a Suit because he was a big fella and he taught me how to make markets and uh and he put me on a badge and i made markets in national semi first and then it was you know tiny little stock me and dave snyder and baba fatarucci and mm -hmm. baba fatarucci sure a few other guys um well i had lloyd Ca i did an interview with lloyd cassidy he was in the national semiconductor pit also but Maybe a little bit later than 76. I'm not sure exactly when. I don't well, that would have been 78. Started. I was in the semi in 70. Uh, I wrote this stuff down. It would have been 78, 79 because the OEX opened in 83. Right. And I was actually Great Lakes Options. Doug Conley, DUG. I the Great Lakes, sure. And Danny Hewitt. They asked me to join them as a floor broker. So I, I did. Say, how did you make the transition from being an independent market maker or somebody that was being back to a broker? It was... Uh, Good. And I, I was in Johnson Johnson Teledyne with Danny Hewitt, who was the floor broker for Great Lakes. And when I worked for Lee Keller, I was in the, in the crowd with Danny Hewitt and we became pals. Mm -hmm. I just talked to him yesterday, actually. Um, and when they, they had a spot open because they knew the OEX was going to open and they needed somebody in there because we had all these customers. I mean, we did everybody on the floor. Mm -hmm. When they opened the OEX in 1985, 85. Five, no, 83. 85 is when the new building opened. Yes. 83, when they opened the OEX, I went in there and the first day it opened, I did 13 contracts. That was, that was big. And I was the only floor broker. How about that? And um, I was in there with what was the big guy's name? Um, drove the white Eldo with the red pinstripes, Chuck. Um, I can't remember, but it was just a few market makers and me. El Dorado, Charlie. Um, Charlie, yeah, Charlie used to park it illegally right next to the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie, oh my gosh. Oh, uh, Everybody knows him. Charlie. Um, he used to, I saw him at a White Sox game in his yeah. leather trading jacket with yeah. his badge on at a White Sox game. Charlie, yeah. he he had a, a, his clerk's name was Linda. They were like boyfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. Charlie Lieberman. Lieberman, yep. That's Charlie it. Lieberman. Yeah, he was bigger than life. Yeah. He was. He was. But he wasn't bad. I broke up a fight between him and Yippie once in the old OEX. Um, that's a long time ago. 
But um, then a new floor opened in 85 and we had that big pit. And I hired a couple of clerks and then I had to leave the floor in 1990 to have my hip. I had a full hip implant surgery mm. and the best guy in the world at the time was in Arizona. So I moved to Arizona uh, Peter Hines, PJH. Yeah. yeah I see him frequently. Yeah. He took over as he was, uh, he ran FHW on the floor and hired a bunch of clerks and, and we kept that going until 96 and uh, was your recovery six years after the hip surgery? <laughs> no, it's been 32 years of recovery. Oh boy. Um, yeah, 1990, I had it April 1st, and it still works. Um, and I haven't been that kind to it, but that got me to move to Arizona. And um, I was on a plane once. I used to go back for, for every expiration. Mm -hmm. So every expiration week, I would fly to Rhinelander where I had a house. No, actually, it was that was Edgerton. And then I'd drive down to the SIBO and spend the week in Chicago, sometimes at Barney McDermott's, mm -hmm. sometimes at Sazdoff's. Sometimes <laughs> I, I, stayed, I stayed at all my buddies' houses. Uh -huh. um, and... Um, then I met Mark Greenberg on a flight once. We were going back to Chicago. He used to do the same thing. He used to go back every expiration week. Um, once a, so once a month, we go back a week a month. How about that? And he had retired to Arizona. And then he had a terrible divorce. So we had to, he had to go back to work. So we founded uh, Walsh Greenberg, not the floor brokerage firm, but the a little real estate firm we bought a bunch of hud houses 30 at one time mm -hmm. and um and then another friend of mine and then i opened edge trading which was a back in 80 no what year was it 97 98 when everyone wanted to be a day trader sure. remember so's bandits wait what bandits was it so's s-o-e-s small order execution system it was called um, they were called i the remember SOS. the acronym but i forget what they what that was they were called the so's bandits they were day traders they were doing what i just did um holy cow look at this rally spoos are only down 17 um so gold must be going lower gold's only gold's back under 2000 giving a quick market report there thank you but um so I owned a day trading office that cost me a million bucks when I shut it down because there were a few big firms, nationwide firms, and we just had an office in Phoenix at Camelback and 44th Street. And when I closed it, it was uh, very expensive. Actually, Greenberg was a partner with me in that too. Mm -hmm. um, and then I worked- So you with had a small firm where- were, were you providing electronic access to the trading yep. floor or did electronic yep. access come to you and you would order, you would execute? Came to my office. Trade. I had four traders, um, block trading about a mile down the street, had 50 at the same time. So they were profitable. They were doing really well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just provided access. I provided computers and big monitors and TVs in each corner. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only thing I sold when we shut it down was the monitors. <laughs> They were the only thing that had value. Wow. I remember paying $16,000 for one server. That was the one that went to the NASDAQ. We had a broker in Oakland that we had to go through mm -hmm. because I didn't have any licenses. And when I left the floor, I walked away from my broker dealer. I, I left everything. I sold my seat. I did. I just got completely out. We're trying to rally. 
Um, and then I was in trade secrets office, that group, the educational group, after I stopped, after I closed edge trading, a group called trade secrets started and they're an educational group nationwide. And we ended up with about 5,000 customers and wow. we'd have a show. We'd have a show every month in Vegas. So I had to go to Vegas every month for three years and um, which was fine. It was fun. And I was young. A bit, of, a bit of a grind though. So what were the trade shows like? Were you just promoting edge trading? Well, no, it was trade secrets. It was trade education. Secret, uh -huh. We'd have a two day show in Vegas and everybody paid three grand. And we'd have seven, 800 people in the room Holy smoke. and we'd put on huge trades. I mean, we do a 10,000 lot butterfly and in uh, whatever this was before the industry, this was all equity stuff. Pretty much. You charge $3,000 per show per month and you'd get how many people? 700. Yeah, we'd have it, we'd have at least three, four hundred. So the big ones would be six, seven hundred. They had to put a tent up in the parking lot because we were too big for the for their ballrooms. Um, and because we had so many people, we I was like the broker in the room. I'd mm -hmm. have to go around and collect everyone's tickets. We'd hand out tickets and we'd say, okay, we're going to do this uh, vertical in Johnson Johnson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd collect all the tickets and count the count the number of contracts and we'd enter it and we'd fill it. And uh, then my job was to also monitor all those positions and send emails out whenever we are going to make an adjustment or close or do something with the trades that we put on at each show. So then I was sitting in the office one day and a guy from the CBOT that I remembered was in the office from Chicago. And he said, did you remember Tom Sosnoff? I said, well, yeah. He said he's starting a brokerage firm and he's looking for customers. And at that time we had 5,000 customers. Wow. And um, they were all over the place. Some were at Smith, you know, they were all the brokerage firms. We had, you know, a couple hundred to be there a couple. Of, and when we had these shows, it would be, would have been much easier if all 500 were at one firm. Sure. But we, we call out this position to, to take and they'd all be calling their brokers and trying to do it electric, whatever. So I flew to Chicago with the founder of Trade Secrets, uh, who is now a big realtor in Scottsdale. But uh, we shook hands and we moved our 5,000 customers and we started Thinkorswim. My account was actually number 57. I wrote it down. Wow. Um, it was Sosnoff's folks and his relatives and Scott Sheridan's relatives. They were the only customers. Sure. So I we remember kind of those days. I remember the conversation, hearing about it, the rumors. Uh, but Thinkorswim was, I remember looking at their platform saying, oh my gosh, this is better than what I used on the trading floor as a professional. It it's, was very impressive. It was, it was unbelievable what they built. Um, and of course it was market makers and floor guys that built the platform. We didn't mm -hmm. do it. We had tech guys that did it, but we told them how to build it, what was important and how to, how it should look and how you would enter orders. And mm -hmm. um, I kept adding things like, I always brag about this, but um, drag and drop, you can drag and drop from the left side to the right side on the platform. I'm still on the platform. It works great. Um, having a good day too. Look at this. The spoos are going to go. <laughs> this gonna is up on the day. They're going to be up on the day. We still have an hour. So um, I, I'm right. Short term, very, very bullish. All my indicators and analytics are incredibly washed out. I, I see growth. Uh, 
stretched to the opposite side of the band is value. So I'm not so I'm not buying into this conversation about oil and value and, and inflation just yet. I think we're going to see a nice rally in growth. Uh, but anyhow, that's off on, on another another side. So go ahead. Amazon, so Swim, Amazon's up almost 200 on the split news. Um, I thought it would go lower. A lot of times when a stock announces a split, they go lower because the, the, the funds that own, if you own 10 million shares of Amazon, all of a sudden you're going to own 200. Do you really want a 20 to one split? The, the value of the stock doesn't change, but it just makes it so much harder to hedge. Right. Um, I mean, what are you going to do with 20 million shares of Amazon? What, how are you going to hedge that? Though? Let it ride. <laughs> well, you'd have to do a big index. You know, you couldn't trade 30,000 calls against it or so. So once Thinkorswim started then, so what's been occupying your time for the last 20 years? You're still with Thinkorswim? Because they that was, happened right at the turn of the, the new millennium. Right? I was with Thinkorswim until March of last year when when Chuck Schwab, I made it through, we took over Invest Tools, mm -hmm. which was IEDU, they were a publicly traded company. And within six months, I told Sosnoff, I said, in six months, we're going to be the dominant factor in this new company. And it was true. And we became SWIM. SWIM was a stock, was our stock symbol. Mm -hmm. We actually traded on the NASDAQ. And um, then we, who took us over first? Um, well, when TD took us over. And then Schwab took TD. And then Schwab, we went from, we had 100,000 customers. Sorry. Thinkorswim had 100,000 customers when we were the biggest. And um, that's when TD took us over. So we went from 100,000 to 6 million. And then TD bought out uh, Roger Reine, who's at the Scott Trade. And we went from 6 million to 12 million. And then when Schwab took over TD, it went from 12 million to 25 million. That's insane. It's, that's what Schwab has now, 25 million customers. But they couldn't find it in their heart to keep paying Frankie Walsh. So Schwab said, see you later, even though I did a little little some of their business on the floor right jimmy boiler Vivers would be too busy and they just hand me a bunch of orders but that didn't count uh, as anything there they go um 25 million so how many okay so starting with thinkorswim with the hundred thousand customers how many were active five percent ten percent fifty percent that's a great question i would say act what now our active that's one reason td took us over because our active customers were, our active customers, a mm -hmm. small percentage, but they were trading, let's say 10 times a day. Whereas the TD, what TD considered active customers mm -hmm. were trading once or twice a month. Got it. So they want, they just saw this commission in, in their face, you know, mm -hmm. having customers that would trade 10 times what they were used to. Right. So um, it's, a good, it's a good analytics if you're TD, if you're anybody. Well, we were the first to educate the customers. We had free education. We took that $3,000 for two days. Mm -hmm. We gave it away. Yeah. And um, that it paid off for the customer and it paid off for Thinkorswim because the customer would stay in business longer and Thinkorswim would get more commissions. Right. It was. Uh, so how did you cover so much, so many topics in two days? I mean, that's an insane amount of, of, of uh, education that's going down the pipe in. Well, we would just, we would mostly just talk verticals mm -hmm. or butter, you know, a co combination of a couple of butter, uh, verticals, a butterfly. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We would, we'd put in maybe, we'd get them all into 15, maybe 20 different positions. And then my job as the broker mm-hmm. would be to tell them what we were doing, why we were doing it and how important time was, you know, you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to roll an option, you know, the best, there's certain times where you got to do this stuff that, that's better for the customer. And we had to teach them that. And that's why they stayed in business longer. Right. Interesting. Instead well, of rolling. Yeah. Oh, instead of rolling for a dime, if you wait another day, you get 20 cents mm-hmm. um, or two days. Um, the closer to expiration, the closer to the strike price. The better. That's what we always stressed. Um, and of the 12 million active customers at Schwab now, do you have any idea through the rumor mill? And again, no, there aren't, there aren't, there aren't 12 million active customers. Yeah. There's 25 million total customers mm. at Schwab now. And I bet maybe one or 2% are at what Thinkorswim would consider active. So Thinkorswim sold for like 600 million or something. I that was the TD. That was the TD. All right. So then Saznoff uh, and Tony Batista and the other partners who I, I don't Scott remember. Scott Sheridan. They started Tasty Trade, right? That was maybe an NDA was up or non-compete was up. Or was this already something that was kind of going on behind the scenes before Thinkorswim was purchased and it just was part that's of the good, deal. That's a good point. He was, Tommy was working on it because he knew um, they were going to get taken over and he knew he had to do something else. Right. And he always wanted to be a TV star. He was, he's, he should have, <laughs> I always tell him he should have been on, he should have, should have been a vaudevillian. He missed his calling because mm-hmm. he is the best guy I've ever seen on stage in regards to, the, the investment industry right by far and away um so he sold for 600 million and then his firm tasty trade tasty works now they started a brokerage firm which scott sheridan runs and that firm was taken over by um i h h g y what's the symbol i think it's i h h g y i can't remember the name i h h it's bad when you can only remember symbols. Um, what was your acronym on the floor? Y-E-A. Y- okay, Y-E-A. Um, you were a friend with uh, Clink and... Uh, Peter Clink. Gary Peter, Boris was the I'll best works. man at my wedding. Who was? Gary Boris. Oh, Gary and Fred Boris. Yeah, they were good friends Gary of mine Boris. from Lincolnwood. Yeah. But Clink now works for Sosnoff. He went over and he's the risk guy for Tastyworks. Wow. Uh, so what, what's, well. so what, what do you think you, what was the skills that you brought to this? Because, you know, I honestly, Frank, you're the only guy in Sosnoff. I mean, you guys just went absolutely parabolic in terms of your successes and the things that you've been able actually to build. And, and so, you know, what would you say your unique skill set was to the whole system? And then from there, like, how does, how does, and if you do, if you want to go down this road, that's fine, but what skills or how does Tom or Sheridan, like how did these guys kind of have these continual successes? Because it seems like you only get one chance, right? You get your 15 minutes of fame and that's it. But these guys are able to duplicate this three or four times. It's, it's, well, I, I give him a hard time because he sold what Tommy did, Tommy and Scott, they sold, they literally sold the same hundred thousand customers. First, they sold it for $600 million, and then they sold the same customer base for a billion dollars. Same exact customers. Unbelievable. So I, when it happened, I texted Saz. I said, Tommy, how did you do this? He, he said one word, amazing. 
right? I'm, I'm telling you, he, he is the salesman. I, he's the ultimate salesman. And once again, you know, how do I say this? <sighs> Great trader on the floor. Mm -hmm. But you remember what it was like. When we started Thinkorswim, everybody got a monkey. Did you ever get a monkey? Did you ever have? No. Uh, well, we sent monkeys, literally tens of thousands of them out to every everybody that opened an account got a monkey, a little black Thinkorswim monkey. Okay. Because we said that back in the old days, even a monkey on the floor could have made money. You remember when the market was a dollar and a half, two? Right. And somebody would come in, some, you know, Smith Barney broker would come in and say, two bid. And everybody would sell them and then they just buy them back at one and three quarters or, you know, right. I mean, it was a layup pretty much. So we had the idea sending monkeys out. I have dozens of them all around my houses. Um, That's funny. <laughs> what I brought was because I was both a market maker and a floor broker. See, Saz and Sheridan were just market makers. They never right. saw the brokerage end of it. And I filled orders in the OEX. So I brought the brokerage aspect into it. And uh, they obviously went with it and sold it for 1.6. But um, it, it's just, it, it's crazy. So now I just live in Arizona in the mm -hmm. winter and in Rhinelander, Wisconsin in the summer. And I trade. Um, and I've been offered some deals by some of these educational data services. But, um, you know, I, they, they can't pay me what I was used to making. So, sure. so here I sit and I scalp the spoos. Um, and so, I mean, if, if, if you were to get approached by a firm that really, that paid you what you felt you were worth, I mean, is this something you think you'd pick up and do again? Do you enjoy the teaching aspect? Do you enjoy the traveling aspect? I don't, in, uh, I was, and I have to say this, I was the superstar at the trade show booths. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted to see Frankie Walsh. I hate to say that, um, oh, I, that's but good. that's the truth. And being at the booth was great. I loved it. I loved the customers and they, you know, they'd have great questions. And I'd always say, cause you know, when we were on the floor, no customer knew what a butterfly was. No. And Pat, remember Pat Carroll from uh, Southwest securities. He uh, worked with Stritzel and Gino Cooney and he came to one of our shows. Pat Carroll's. One was the broker that ended yep. up at. Um... Yep. Yep. Southwest up with Renee. And yes. Uh, yeah. Right. What was the name of their company? I can't remember. But uh, he came to one of our shows mm -hmm. and we had five or 600 people in the room. And we said, we're going to do this butterfly. And everyone in the room knew what we were talking about. And he was totally shocked. Uh -huh. He couldn't believe it. He didn't think there were 10 people in the country that knew what a butterfly was. Sure. We had 500 of them in one room. And um, so he, that's, we did a lot of paper because we had so many customers. Right. And I remember calling when we were looking for one home, thank God Sosnoff saved us. I called Jimmy, I called my guy at Schwab, Jimmy Boyle, mm -hmm. stood in front of me for all those years. And I said, uh, this is a quote. I said, Jimmy, we've got 5,000 customers and we're looking for a home for him. And he, he said, Frankie, Schwab has, adds 5,000 customers a month. We don't need to pay you for 5,000 customers. Right. But Sosnoff did. <laughs> so we worked the deal and we uh started thinkerswim and now he's a billionaire and i'm sitting here scalping spoos um 
You ever watch his show? It's great. It's hilarious. Him I, I did for a while. I, I got a subscription to to the Thinker. Uh, well, I was using Thinker Swim through the TD platform, but the yep. uh, Pastry Trade. I've watched his was episodes. On it. it was on it. Yep. Love it. Love watching it. And actually, I just commend him for his dedication because he's been doing a show of one way or another, like every day for years. It's unbelievable. He gets up at 3 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. He's downtown with Batista. They do it, they cut a show every day. He, he doesn't give up, he's a machine. What and always I, amazes our customers is that somebody will have a position, you know, and the spools will open and they'll be down 50 overnight and they'll email him at three o'clock in the morning and he gets right back to him. And I'm talking tens of thousands of customers. And I know he's got somebody now that helps him with the emails, obviously. But um, he is the hardest working, most driven guy I've ever met. And I know a lot of hard working, driven people. Sure. Um, he is, he's, he's, he's worked for what he's got. Yeah. Amen to that. So let's go back to the CBUE trading floor while we have you know, oh, yeah. got about 15 minutes left. Um, do, give us some great memories, you know, some memories of the old days. It could be funny stories, interesting, quirky things about other traders, the crash of 87, mini crash of 89, well, like whatever you just give us a couple of memories. And then, um, well, Barney would have a lot of memories of me because I spit in the back of his head every day for 20 years. Right. I stood right behind Barney and I stood on two boxes and I had one Remember when the floor brokers had boxes. Of course. We stood on boxes. Mm -hmm. Coach, remember Coach? Uh, Doug Redmond, Coach. He paid for all those boxes. Really? And I had mine carpeted, so I had a cushy. But um, the crash of 87, I was the broker just because the crowd was so big. They had to open like certain months in different areas. Mm -hmm. and just because of where I stood, I was in charge of opening the DEES options on the day of the crash or the awesome. week of the crash let's say mm -hmm. so every morning i'd have to come in and make sure all the boxes were in line mm -hmm. i'd always keep up the prices so that all the five dollar boxes were five bucks or four and seven eighths five and eight whatever and one day it was like the day before the crash maybe mm -hmm. it was the day before i had an order to sell a thousand puts at 116th at a teeny and they kept going teeny bit on the screen. They were like $100 out of money. Or not $100 back then because the OEX was only 200 They were like way out of the money. Mm -hmm. And I kept going, puts it a teeny. And somebody would put them a teeny bit all the way across the ground. Sure. And I didn't know who. I knew what area because all the areas had uh, letter designations. Mm -hmm. So finally, Fabian V. Mang, FVM, who I'm still friends with, he turned around because I was screaming and going crazy. Yeah. He turned around and he said, Frankie, shut the up. I'll buy those from you. And, and I, and he said, Hager, and he elbowed Kent Hager who stood next to me. He goes, help me buy these from Frank. They didn't know how many I had. They thought I had 10 or 20. I said, 500 each. And Fabian went, I just gave, he was from New Orleans. He said, I just gave away 500 teenies. You know what he sold them for? They went from a one sixteenth. Mm -hmm. $86. No way. And he, wow. and now he did a backspread, you know, he bought 500 of these way out of the oh, money. 250 point. something else. So, yeah. So he sold one right at the money or just a one lot or a two mm -hmm. lot, to, you know, to bring the Delta and it made, he retired on that. He retired on he that. Did. Moved back to new Orleans, opened a bar called legends. Um, he was the legend of new Orleans. I don't know if you know about Fabian, but um, no. 
he was the um, he was captain of all three major sport teams in high school, and they all won the state championships. So he was the legend of New Orleans. If you go oh, to New Orleans now and you go, uh, do you know the legend? They'll say Fabian Mang. Honest to God, it's it pretty. It's, it's you'd never know it from seeing the guy, but uh, although he was a big, big fella, um, but that was the him and Hager didn't feel it because Hager was so big, mm-hmm. size wise. You know, the five hundred lot just you know moved his needle an inch a little bit. But um, yeah, that was my crash story. Um, and Barney, another crash story was that same day or the day after the Monday, I guess it would have been, I'm looking up at the Deces because I was opening the the, uh, opening rotation. This is called closing rotation. This was on opening rotation. I noticed that there was some Dece calls or puts, I can't remember which ones they were, but they were 10, you know, I'm trying to line up the boxes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to make all the options even. So they're each spread is five bucks right around there. One, one option was $10 overpriced on the book, 800 contracts. So I said, Barney, look at the D forties. And he went, he sold them. Mm-hmm. And so he made $10, he locked in $10. So he, he does the other, he does all three other sides. So he has a box on, he now is short, uh, $10 box for 20 and a quarter. So I wish I stood next to you, Frank. It was no, no, no brokers by me help me out like that. Uh, uh, Billy, it was unbelievable. So he goes, You have any Bear Stearns tickets? He was going to lunch. I said, Yeah. He said, Give me two of a spread ticket. So I gave so he now he's short a box 800 times. Oh, he only did it 700. He gave Tommy Papoutsis 100 of them. So he's short a box 700 times, a $10 box. He shorted for 20 and a quarter. So he says, and he writes up a box. He goes, Buy me this box for 10 bucks. He said, if you have, you know, pay 10 bucks, you know, right. it's worth 10 bucks. So he said, uh, if you have to, if you get stuck on a leg or whatever, you can pay 10 and a teeny. I knew he was shorter for 20 and a quarter, right. but he said, if you have to pay 10 and a teeny. So, um, but that was what's 800 times 10. That's $800,000. Is that yeah. 8 million? Or eight? That's a lot of money. 800 grand. But Let that, me ask this. And just, you know, just so you, for the record, I mean, the, the premium in the S&P 500 was, 20, 30, 40 points over, 20 points Crazy. under. So even having a, a risk-free neutral position on like a box was still a threat because you could have got assigned early, on your short calls. Early assignment. Yeah. If they, if they, you know, that was the problem into, with the OEX. The right. Early it was exercise. Or European. Uh, no, it was American, American. exercise style. Yeah. So you could get assigned on your calls at any time in the expiration cycle. Exactly. And that, so he could have been, he could have been. That was the risk. That was the risk. Yeah. Early assignment. That's why they opened up the, what was it called? The XEO. That was the OEX. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, European style. Yeah. I don't think those took off very well, but it was a good thing. Well, they didn't. You, have you ever, have you looked, when's the last time you looked at the OEX? They uh, trade like 10 contracts a day. 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable the yeah. difference. Well, you know, the OEX was the first index product. Yeah. So if you wanted to hedge something, if you wanted to lay off some risk, you had to go there. That's sure. why it became so popular. Yeah. And then now and there's because it wasn't of- so perfectly neutral that gave it its allure. The SPX pit, you know, next to us was a European exercise. It was right. interest rate plays. The institutional tr- players were attracted to that. And for them, they didn't want an early exercise. Yeah, they just wanted right. to lock they didn't it want that risk. not worry about right. it until the end of the day. 
And the market makers could handle it and they could figure it out and they could they could do something against it. Yeah. Boy, but you're a pretty guys, passive guy here. I think you're like Sazanoff answering all these text messages each well, time see, today. Um, see what these are? These are three pills. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where we that's where we came from, right? That's that's where we're at, huh, Frank? Oh my gosh. That's well, where we're at. I take about 20 pills a day. Yeah, I take a bunch of I have, each day. I have diabetes, so those are for neuropathy. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's brutal. But you were but back in the old days. I mean, we were. Uh, what did um, somebody? Rick Cusack said it's like we're um, we're rock and roll stars with day jobs. Yeah, that's what we were. But I we didn't. I didn't really know it at the time. I mean, I started when I was 22. Uh, I mean, I took it for a little bit for granted. Thought it was always going to be there and. Yeah, but it was the best days of my life. Honestly, everybody has been able to echo that, you know, Barney and Larry Berlin. It was just, it was absolutely amazing. And it was, we all kind of wish we could get a second chance at it again. Cause we would do things a little bit different, but we're lucky to live through that. And amen. Be, I mean, it's you really a small were. group um, yeah. if you, over time. I mean, only a couple thousand people got to, got to be there. Yeah. And we were lucky enough to be part of that. And part I, of I, history. We're having a reunion every year uh, in Scottsdale. We have a reunion. It's March 25th, a couple of weeks. Um, and Gary Bowers, B-O-W, he's there. And uh, Joe Knock and Tony DeCrescenza. And there's about 10 guys that show up every year. And every one of them agrees. Uh, those were the days. Danny Hewitt, DNL. Um, well, when you talk to them, give them my contact information through LinkedIn. And let's, get, let's oh, do an interview with them. That would be great. Okay. Good idea. Yeah. Listen, Frank, this was something special. I mean, you know, you and I, we didn't hang out. I didn't hang out with Larry Berlin or Barney McDermott. I, you know, I went home every day after the close. We all went our kind of separate ways. But now, again, I feel this sense of urgency to capture these stories on video because this was really a part of history that was it. Once it's gone, that's it. I mean, we're doing AI and Robin Hood apps and maybe someday Thinkorswim or Tasty Trade and these things. Yeah, they may be around. I'm sure it'll be fine. But you know, to be able to connect with the old days where things were done open outcry, we did the math in our head, we didn't really have computers, it was paper trading cards, and it took, you know, hours sometimes to report trades and oh, crazy, you know, all that stuff. So trades the next day out trade now everything's cleared right away. It's a, yeah, yeah, which you, brings us to the concept of blockchain technology, which is kind of what oh, yeah. the main focus of this podcast is, is that blockchain really is a transaction and settlement all in one item on one transaction, you know, in the old days, we had to stop at 315, turn in all your cards, they get key punched, <laughs> goes to OCC, the clearing firm, you find out the next day what didn't clear, and you had to take care of it by the opening the next day. You know, that doesn't happen in blockchain technology. The second you do the trade, it clears. And so um, I want to be, bring this old perspective, you know, back to to people that really don't know what the foundations are. And, and I really appreciate your time today. So you've already talked to Barney, right? I did. I just posted his, his interview today on Spotify. Hey. Did and he mention math? Did he mention anything about math? You know, he was a math savant, or he is. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. He did. Um, he didn't really talk that much about it, but he did mention a little bit about it and that he spent a couple of grand on a program that helped him manage his positions. But all of us, we all did every all day long math, all day long, looking at he, boxes, conversions. He saved, Billy, he saved my butt so many times. Um, I'd say, Barney, what's 186 times one and 11 sixteenths? And he would tell me the number just like that. 
No, I needed a calculator for that one. <laughs> it was, it used to, and Marty, guys used to bet them. Uh -huh. They'd say, Barney, what's 17,482 times one and three quarters? And he would tell them. No way. No, he didn't say that on the, on the, it, on the podcast. On a, it was, it was, and I do, a, I'd have some goofy Charlie Cox, you know, one by three by five. And I do 15 on one side. And I, I wouldn't be able to figure it out in my head how many I had to do on the other two sides. He would just tell me. Wow. He, uh, it was, it's not why I moved into that area in the crowd because of Barney, but, uh, boy, he saved me many times. Well, but I did give him those, uh, I did give him that 10 bucks 800 times. So yeah. I guess I made up for it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Frank, is there, um, people want to contact you? Is there anything you want to promote in shameless self-promotion at the end of the, every episode? Um, you know, mm -hmm. if anybody, if, if there's anything you want to talk about, a non-for-profit, a business thing you're working on, anything that we can do to help you? Well, I do have a website, whatsfrankthinking.com. It's just my old blogs because I used to write a blog every day for 20 years. I wrote a blog every day and I was I ran a couple of the chat rooms for Thinkorswim. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they ended that March 31st last year, I stopped writing my blog, but there's a, there's probably a couple hundred of them still on the site if anybody wants to go there. Just to, I used to call it Frankie's bullshit because it, it's just, you know, it's just, sorry. But okay. it's, just, it's just stories. Everybody, I had 12,000, went to 12,000 emails at, uh, in its heyday. Yeah. So I'd have people at, at trade shows come up and ask me how the dogs were and how my pretty blonde better half. And I called my son the heir to the mortgage. Everybody knew all this stuff. And right. they would come up and talk to me at the booth. And Sosnoff would say, is this your uncle? Who are these people? And, um, but it was, the, those are, those, those were my heydays after the floor. Yeah. And it was thanks to, once again, thanks to uh, Sosnoff and Sheridan and the Thinkorswim gang. But uh, those days are over also. Yeah. Well, listen, man, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, again, hey, I, thanks for I'll doing be, this. This is this is great. I'll be cleaning up. You know, I'm just going to do a little bit of post-production and we'll get it up on Spotify, you know, probably in about a week. Who's next? Who can I? Uh, I'll, I'll mention it at the uh, reunion. And I've got Steve Givett. Uh, coming on and wow. recording that one. So he he's um, an, an old but a good. Wasn't he a governor candidate? Wasn't he a candidate? He for was. Governor? He did ran for run for political office. And something something who who mentioned it? It was um maybe Larry Berlin or uh, Mark Cavanaugh. One of the guys that I interviewed reminded me that um, Blair, Hull. Blair Hull ran for state senator against Obama. And how different things would be if Blair Hull won versus. I was sitting in. Which Ken is insane Hager's office. when you think about it. <laughs> One morning I was sitting there and the Sun Times came out with a story about Blair Hull's marriage. Uh -huh. And that, that's why Obama became president. Yeah, Honestly, I think God, I remember if he that. He wouldn't have won that race. Things would things be very different. <laughs> way different. Yeah. So All right, man. I gotta hop. I've got. I've got a few okay, minutes to freshen up and and reset the machine here. And again, are you still in space. Chicago? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in Glenview, about 16 miles north of uh, of Chicago. Uh, my friends and... live in Glenview. I know Glenview very well. Good. Well, the next time you you swing by, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I know. What's the coffee place you always talk about? The Glenview Grind. Okay. It's a small, right. you know, small family run coffee shop in Glenview, yeah. and All right. got a nice Feature nice atmosphere. There. All right, man. Thanks, Frank. Okay, Take care. FHW, thank you for being See with you. us. Thanks.
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individuals individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Seneca Capital Management, LLC, a state-registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Seneca Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.